Well, thank you for that, uh, that lovely introduction, Tim. Went on a bit long. I think you were eating up some of my time, as a matter of fact. <laughs> you know, when Dr. O'Donnell invited me to, uh, to give this talk several months ago, he, uh, he asked me what date I would suggest. And without thinking very much about it, I said, oh, November 3. I really didn't advert until quite recently that uh, November 3 would be uh, right before two, two very important events, uh, the, uh, the national elections and uh, Monday night football. <laughs> so I figured out that my, my, my task was probably to provide a bit of diversion before these, these, these really important things <laughs> happened. Uh, and I think it's perfectly well to be diverting if one can. Let me begin this talk about, about the abuse of secrecy in the Catholic Church by, I hope, setting the minds of some of you at rest a bit. The Catholic Church has a right to practice secrecy. In fact, it has a grave duty to do that when secrecy is necessary to protect important human goods, especially the good name and privacy of individuals. The need is particularly clear and compelling in regard to the seal of confession, a serious obligation imposed on priests and anyone who overhears a confession never to disclose what is said in this sacramental context, which canon law calls inviolable. But besides confession, the church has a right and duty to keep secrets in regard to other matters as well. For example, information obtained in pastoral counseling, and also in situations outside the strictly religious sphere, where church groups have the same rights and duties as any others. For instance, the right to protect legitimate economic and business interests, the right to keep policy deliberations confidential if their premature disclosure would jeopardize the deliberative process or the working of the policy itself, the obligation to respect the privacy of people who haven't done or said anything that others need to know about, and so on and so on. In these matters, as in many others, the church's right and duty to keep secrets and preserve confidentiality are immensely important to its leaders and members, as well as to society as a whole. At a time when invasions of privacy by identity theft and unauthorized intrusions by government and commercial interests are serious problems in many places, the values of personal privacy and integrity at stake here merit serious respect and assiduous protection. In no way should the Catholic Church make common cause with the violators of privacy. There, I've said it, and I hope I hope it's clear where I stand on these matters. But the abuse and the misuse of secrecy is something else. 
The abuse of secrecy has played a part in some of the most serious problems of the church, and it goes on doing that at all levels, from parishes to the national level and beyond. The scandal of clergy sex abuse and official concealment, in other words, cover-up, is an especially painful instance. But there are many others. For example, the financial scandals in church-related institutions and programs that now and then erupt. The excessive secrecy prevailing in the way bishops and pastors are selected, and in the way that religious institutes, which depend on public support, conduct their internal affairs. The closed-door approach to church governance found in so many settings and so on and so on and so on. I supply numerous examples of what I'm talking about in my book. Now, of course, secrecy doesn't cause sex abuse or financial malfeasance or any other specific aberration, but time and again, it's a contributing factor that makes offenses more likely to occur and more difficult to detect and correct. Responding to something that I'd written about this problem, an elderly bishop once wrote me a long, heartfelt letter, candidly sharing his own feelings and impressions. In part, he said this, and I quote, the very worst scandal of our times in the church has been the sexual predations of some priests. The attempt to keep such matters secret on grounds of protecting reputations through the years simply allowed the evil to fester and grow. And when the dam of secrecy finally broke, as it always will, the whole church suffered for its lack of candor. Close quote. As for church finances, in the spring of 2006, the Archdiocese of Boston, in desperate economic straits, published a very detailed financial report showing a $46 million operating deficit. This report was widely praised as a model that other dioceses should imitate, but at least one archbishop publicly dismissed that idea. It's a mistake to give people so much information, he said, since after all, and again I quote, it's easy for the data to get misinterpreted. That was a variation on a theme which is heard in many settings besides ecclesiastical ones. It goes like this. If we tell people the whole truth, they won't understand it. So let us tell them a bit less than the whole truth. But this, I think, is a circular argument. If people are systematically denied access to information, the result will naturally be ignorance. And in that case, it's hardly fair and reasonable to continue to deny them information and participation in the church's affairs because they're too ignorant to understand. Reasoning like that is common in some quarters in the church, but it's 
It's withholding information that begets ignorance. And the only way to correct it is by sharing information and supplying explanations as needed. Now, I need to emphasize that abuses of secrecy are not a problem only in the Catholic Church. The same problem exists just about every place in society today, in government, the military, and the private sector, and also in public schools. Last year, an investigation by the Associated Press covering all 50 states and the District of Columbia found that in the years from 2001 through 2005, at least 2,570 public school educators had had their teaching credentials revoked or denied or had been compelled to surrender their credentials or have been otherwise sanctioned in response to charges of sexual misconduct. But the problem is even larger than that number by itself suggests. Most of the abuse never gets reported, the Associated Press concluded. The news agency found deeply entrenched resistance toward recognizing and fighting abuse by public school teachers. Among fellow teachers, educational administrators, and state and federal lawmakers. It's easy to see why people guilty of wrongdoing often try to keep what they've done secret. But guilty people aren't the only ones. People in leadership positions in many fields not uncommonly conceal information of various kinds with the aim of manipulating and controlling others. When people find out that they've been deceived in this way, they typically react with anger and alienation. The American ethicist Cicela Bach says victims of deception commonly are resentful, disappointed, and suspicious. They feel wronged, they are wary of new overtures. And they look back on their past beliefs and actions in the light of the discovered lies. It hardly needs saying that this was the immediate reaction of many American Catholics to the sex abuse scandal. In the Catholic Church, and probably in other churches and religious bodies as well, although they aren't my subject, the abuse of secrecy, time and again, is linked to clericalism and the clericalist mentality. That statement needs careful explaining, however, lest it be seen as more inflammatory than it's meant to be, or as an intemperate and unfair anti-clerical generalization. So let me make it clear that in speaking of clericalism, I'm not speaking only of the clergy. The mixture of attitudes and behaviors that comprise clericalism and the clericalist culture are by no means limited to them, either in the Catholic Church or in any other denomination. Furthermore, I believe that in the Catholic Church today, clericalism is at least as common and may even be more common 
among the Catholic laity than it is among those in holy orders. The essence of clericalism, its, its root, its source, I believe is a deficient theology of vocation. It expresses itself in a certain way of thinking about persons, relationships, and roles in ecclesial settings that usually adds up to a kind of benevolent paternalism. It's assumed that priests, and to a lesser degree religious, must always be the people in charge, the decision makers, the direction setters, the initiators of action, and the ultimate authorities. Lay people are a permanent ecclesiastical underclass. By nature, the laity are passive and subservient in need of clerical direction. This way of thinking extends also to the spiritual realm. Priests and religious, it's supposed, are called to spiritual excellence, to holiness. Lay people do well in satisfying the minimal obligations placed upon them by the church and muddling through. The Second Vatican Council's call to holiness is largely unheard and unheeded as a result. As I said, I think a mistaken notion of vocation is at the root of all this. The error lies fundamentally in equating vocation with what is usually called state in life. The reality of personal vocation is overlooked. Moreover, it's taken for granted that the clerical state is intrinsically superior to all others, that is to say, to the consecrated life, to the married state, and to the single lay state in the world. Now, if the clericalist idea of vocation were correct, it would surely follow that to be a lay member of the church was an intrinsically, inescapably inferior condition. In that case, the laity could achieve advancement in an ecclesiastical setting only to the extent that they were somehow allowed to look and act a bit like priests. Well, attitudes like these, I think, help to explain the exaggerated enthusiasm that exists today for lay ministry and for the involvement of lay people in functions like reading scripture and distributing communion that only clerics formerly could perform, formerly could perform. Yes, lay ministry is a good thing in many ways, but it is not unrelated to clericalist thinking. But what exactly is the relationship between clericalism and secrecy? Well, quite simply this. Secrecy props up clericalism. As in secular settings, so also in the church, the abuse of secrecy serves as a useful tool in the hands of a managerial class determined, whether consciously or unconsciously, to maintain its position by keeping outsiders in the dark. Here too, the sex abuse scandal and cover-up dramatically illustrate the point. With few exceptions, bishops and religious superiors who hushed up crimes by clerics whom they supervised and who thereby helped make it possible for the crimes to be repeated were intelligent, conscientious people 
acting in the interests of what they considered the welfare of the church. That included avoiding not only scandal, but potentially huge settlement costs. The clericalist mentality in combination with the abuse of secrecy played a key role in determining what would be done in pursuit of this goal. Speaking in general terms of the harm that can result from the abuse of secrecy, Cicela Bach says, and I quote, long-term group practices of secrecy are especially likely to breed corruption. Every aspect of the shared predicament influences the secret practice cumulatively over time. In particular, the impediments to reasoning and to choice and the limitations on sympathy and on regard for human beings. The tendency to view the world in terms of insiders and outsiders can then build up a momentum that it would lack if it were short-lived and immediately accountable. There's an echo of that in a groundbreaking document published by the All-Lay National Review Board established by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops in 2002 to monitor the bishop's new policy on child sex abuse. In a report on causes and context of the abuse crisis, the document specifically links clericalism and secrecy to the scandal. I quote, clerical culture and a misplaced sense of loyalty made some priests look the other way. Clericalism also contributed to a culture of secrecy. In many instances, church leaders valued confidentiality and a priest's right to privacy above the prevention of further harm to victims and the vindication of their rights. The impulse to avoid scandal at all costs manifested itself in several ways. Church leaders kept information from parishioners and other dioceses that should have been provided to them. Some also pressured victims not to inform the authorities or the public of abuse. The review board also pointed to a responsibility issue in, speak, in speaking of the need for church leaders to hear and to heed the concerns of lay people. To accomplish this, it said, the hierarchy must act with less secrecy and more transparency. Now, general meetings, general meetings of the US Conference of Catholic Bishops, the Episcopal Conference of the United States, reflect the ups and the downs of policy and practice regarding secrecy over the last four decades. In most years, the American bishops have two general assemblies in June and November. About 250 members of the hierarchy attend. Every third year in the spring, they substitute a retreat-style session for a business meeting. These retreats, devoted to prayer and reflection, are entirely closed to outsiders, and no reasonable person will object to that. There are, however, grounds for objecting, I think, when closed-door retreat time is used to transact business directly relevant to matters of serious concern to all the members of the church. 
That happened in June of 2004, when at a closed door gathering in, De in Denver, described in advance as devoted to prayer and reflection, the bishops heatedly debated and finally adopted a statement on the sensitive, much discussed issue of giving communion to pro-choice Catholic politicians. As for USCCB business meetings, these are in principle open to accredited journalists and to designated observers. I must say, and this is, I, th I believe, much to the credit of the American hierarchy, this policy appears to be unique among Episcopal conferences of the world, which generally meet in closed sessions. The American bishops also did that for many years. The story of how they came to adopt a new open approach and of how more recently they've shifted back again toward closed door meetings sheds some interesting light on the matters we're considering this evening. By the way, if you've read my book, or if you read it in the future, you'll, you'll know that the story of the American bishops' meetings is hardly the only thing I talk about there. For a fairly short book, I think I cover the waterfront pretty well and give plenty of examples of what I'm talking about. But I'm going to speak about the American bishops' meetings now because they're a good illustration of the problem of secrecy at work and because on the basis of my professional experience, I happen to know a good deal about them. A half century ago, the annual General Assemblies of the American Hierarchy took place in November on the campus of the Catholic University of America in Washington. These quiet, closed-door gatherings received little attention from the press or anybody else. Well, then came the Second Vatican Council. The years were 1962 to 1965. Enormous media attention was focused on the world's bishops, including the Americans, and on what they were doing in Rome. Accordingly, when the US bishops resumed their general meetings back here in the States in 1966, they adopted a new structure, a new agenda, and a new way of doing business. That new way had several aspects. The, bishop, the bishops transferred their assembly from a university campus to a downtown Washington hotel. Reporters, secular as well as Catholic, were invited to cover the event. But unfortunately, the bishops wanted to be newsmakers while remaining behind closed doors. Journalists and observers were physically excluded from the meeting. Information dribbled out via official briefings that were subject to censorship, and the press corps was predictably viewed with suspicion. Leaks were common with bishops themselves, the principal leakers. Spin abounded. The reporters became increasingly annoyed at what they considered a clumsy attempt to manipulate them. The system came, down, came close to breaking down amid confusion and rancor in November of 1968, when the bishops debated a lengthy pastoral letter called Human Life in Our Day, giving their response, supportive, I might add, 
to Pope Paul's encyclical on birth control, Humanae Vitae, along with their views on the Vietnam War. Trying to transact such explosive business in secret turned out a predictable fiasco. A year later, shortly before the November meeting in 1969, I joined the Bishop's Conference staff as Director of Information. Perhaps I should have had my head examined, but I did it. The meeting was still entirely closed. Relations between the bishops and the press were still at rock bottom. The bishops were angry, defensive, and remote. The journalists, hostile and suspicious, took their revenge in the form of negative and sometimes truly hateful coverage. It was obvious that the bishops were hurting themselves by, their, by holding their meetings for no good reason, it must be said, entirely in executive session. For their own sake, they needed to change. Two years later, as a result of efforts by some staff people, and especially by some courageous and far-sighted members of the hierarchy, they did. At their general meeting in November 1971, they voted 144 to 106 to allow reporters to be present at their deliberations and extended similar approval to designated observers, 169 to 76. That the observers got substantially more support than the journalists says a lot in itself about the bishop's feelings toward the press. The first general open general meeting took place in April 1972 in Atlanta. Richard Ostling, a journalist at that time, the religion editor of Time magazine and later chief religion correspondent for the Associated Press, and I might say a sincere committed evangelical Christian, called it extraordinary. Dick Ostling wrote, and I quote, this had never before been permitted in the U.S. or hardly anywhere else in modern times. The U.S. bishops move was the end of an era in which secrecy was virtually an unquestioned fact in policy formulation. Well, that, that open meetings policy has been in place ever since. And on the whole, it served the bishops, the media, and the people of the church quite well. Note that in opening their meetings to direct coverage, the bishops aren't doing journalists a favor. This practice is a service to the church, since most Catholics learned about programs and policies of the National Conference of Bishops from the media. And the coverage is substantially better, both in accuracy and in tone, when journalists can do their work in a professional manner without having unnecessary obstacles placed in their way. But sometime in the mid-1990s, things started to change. Ever since the early 1970s, the bishops had exercised their unquestioned right to conduct some portion of each general meeting in executive session behind closed doors. This usually meant one afternoon in a meeting that ran in the fall for three and a half days. Now, little by little, the time behind closed doors 
began to expand. By June of 2006, at the Bishop's Assembly in Los Angeles, two days out of three were closed. In November 2006, it was one day out of three. In November 2007, out of a total 22 hours meeting time, eight hours were closed to reporters and observers, including four hours for executive sessions, three for prayer, reflection, and a holy hour, and one hour in which the bishops met in regional groupings. This past June, during a meeting scheduled to last three days, only five and a half hours of meeting time were open to journalists and observers. The rest of the assembly took place behind closed doors. And when the bishops meet next week in Baltimore, they will spend about half their time in closed sessions, according to the official announcement from the Episcopal Conference. Now, why has this shift back toward secrecy occurred? Since no explanation has been offered, one can only guess. It may be that some items on the agenda of the Bishop's Conference do warrant the closed door approach. It may be, as is sometimes said, that the bishops don't want people to know that they disagree among themselves on a number of issues. But anybody who follows the Bishop's Conference knows that perfectly well. It may be, and this too is sometimes said, that the bishops don't want to talk publicly about business that they have pending with the Vatican. Yet sometimes they do exactly that, and nothing bad happens as a result. Lacking any publicly stated rationale, however, it's hard not to think that many bishops just feel more comfortable when no one else is around. Now, whether feeling comfortable is a good enough reason for the leaders of a national religious body to conduct business impacting on the interests of its 70 million members in secret is debatable at best. Let me be clear about this. I'm not talking about bad people doing bad things with bad intentions. I'm speaking of good people who are making a mistake without, I believe, really understanding that it is a mistake. That doesn't make it any less of one, but it does make it possible to call attention to the mistake, as I do, without thinking badly of the people who make it. At their famous General Assembly in Dallas in, the June, in June of 2002, the American bishops adopted a new policy on clerical sex abuse, committing them to transparency in their information practices. But you know, up to now, it appears that transparency applies only to matters relating to sex abuse and the protection of children. On other issues, policy and practice are uneven and vary widely on the national, diocesan, and parish levels. To me, this underlines a continuing need for serious attention to the question of secrecy and openness in the church. 
Allow me to get a little personal. Back in the late 1960s and early 1970s, as information director of the Bishops' Conference, I argued for openness on essentially pragmatic grounds. The bishops were hurting themselves by trying to keep up a facade of secrecy. That, as not a few bishops themselves realized, didn't work very well. The policy was making the media angry for no good reason. People who cared about the bishops and what they were doing were confused and upset. Everybody would benefit if the bishops substantially reduced the secrecy and limited it to matters where it was really needed. I still think that's so. As I mentioned, the church has a right and a serious duty to keep secrets and preserve confidentiality in some matters, but unnecessary secrecy is counterproductive. And although I've been speaking here mostly about the bishops, what I've been saying applies in principle at all levels and to all institutions of the church. In 1971, the Vatican's Pontifical Commission, now Council for Social Communications, published a pastoral instruction called Communio et Progressio, Communion and Progress, that remains the church's <clears throat> most comprehensive official statement on media work. Among other things, this admirable document says that when the affairs of the church require secrecy, I quote, the rules normal in civil affairs e equally apply. And it continues. On the other hand, the spiritual riches which are an essential attribute of the church demand that the news she gives out of her intentions as well as of her works be distinguished by integrity, truth, and openness. When ecclesiastical authorities are unwilling to give information or are unable to do so, then rumor is unloosed, and rumor is not a bearer of the truth, but carries dangerous half-truths. Secrecy should therefore be restricted to matters that involve the good name of individuals or that touch upon the rights of people, whether singly or collectively. Over the years, I've come to see that the reasons for openness in the church go far, far beyond the merely pragmatic ones that have been clear to me from the start. Those pragmatic reasons, including self-interest, are valid. But there are other reasons that operate at a much deeper level. Ultimately, it comes down to this. Excessive secrecy in the conduct of church affairs makes difficult, even impossible, the full realization of the church's essential nature as communio, a community of human persons in communion with one another and with God. The ecclesiologist William Henn explains the idea of communio this way, I quote, Jesus offered people an intimate relationship with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whose life they could share in a real way as they looked forward in the hope of a future glory beyond the grave. 
This shared life with God constituted at the same time a new life shared with one another. What the first letter of St. John calls a communion. The church is the communion of persons who are one in the triune God. End of quote. Meetings of bishops are just one instance among many in which that principle of communion is highly relevant in relation not only to what is done, but to the way in which it's done. The sketch of a theology of openness that I suggest in my little book is a tentative first step toward articulating what's needed. A great deal remains to be done. Some time ago, when I consulted a well-known theologian as I was preparing to write the book, he confirmed what I suspected, namely that Catholic theologians have had little to say about secrecy and openness. And he suggested that I consult canon law. As a matter of fact, I did consult canon law. I found an awful lot there about the protecting the, the what shall I say, the inviolability of church archives and records and things of that sort, but nothing about the issue of secrecy as I was interested in pursuing it. Catholic ethicists and moralists, I have found, deal with secrecy and related issues mainly as they concern the question of whether it's sometimes allowable to lie or otherwise conceal the truth. As for the ecclesiologists, these days they speak eloquently about communio, but they seldom consider the concrete everyday requirements of living in communion. If my book does nothing else, I hope it will encourage people with better theological credentials than I have to think and write about these things. That said, however, I am convinced that the overall picture already is reasonably clear. And it looks like this. In any group or community, communication among its members is necessary for the group's health and proper functioning. Communication isn't less necessary in the church either. For reasons I shall explain, it's even more necessary there. Echoing popes in calling public opinion within the church essential, Communio et Progressio, that Vatican document that I mentioned a few minutes ago, makes the important point that Catholics have the right to all the information they need to play their active role in the life of the church. This applies, the document says, this applies to the faithful as individuals and as organized groups. Now, ecclesial communion has a vertical dimension, of course. It begins in and is grounded in our relationship with God. The primacy of this vertical dimension was, must always be recognized and respected. But ecclesial communion also has a horizontal dimension. It involves the human relationships among us who are the members of the people of God. The German theologian, a Lutheran, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 
who was executed by the Nazis near the end of World War II for his anti-Hitler activities, cut to the heart of the matter when he wrote, and I quote, the truthfulness which we owe to God must assume a concrete form in the world. Our speech must be truthful, not in principle, but concretely. A truthfulness which is not concrete is not truthful before God. The systematic abuse of secrecy and other offenses against open, honest communication in the conduct of church affairs that I discuss in my book contradict this fundamental principle of ecclesial communion. By denying some members of the church the information that they need to be full, active, responsible, and essentially equal participants in its life and mission. That doesn't mean the church should never practice secrecy. Sometimes it should and it must. But the presumption ought to be on the side of openness and accountability, with the burden of proof resting on those who hold that secrecy is needed in a particular case. When differences arise, the virtue of prudence must come into play in deciding who's right. Now, it's essential to bear in mind that the church, the Catholic Church, is no less the church because of the problem, or perhaps I should say the set of interlocking problems that I've been talking about. The church still has the Eucharist and the sacraments, the fullness of God's revelation, the means of salvation. And the church still is and will remain a communio, a communion of faith. Nothing can or will change that. On the human level, nevertheless, our communion as church is impaired by the practice of unnecessary secrecy. That, nothing else, is the target of my criticism. To be sure, communion in the church is a spiritual reality that far transcends ordinary human community and communication. That goes without saying, but grace does build on nature, and ordinary human standards of community and communication must be observed for the sake of ecclesial communion itself. As Pope Benedict XVI remarked a few years ago, we cannot communicate with the Lord if we do not communicate with one another. I rest my case. Thank you.